Turn with me again this morning to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the second of a three-part little series that we're doing on the church uh, before we return to uh, our larger series through the Gospel of Matthew. And second week that we're looking at this, this passage here. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, this is God's... Uh, Holy Word, give careful attention as it's read. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The year I went to college, a, a book uh, came out, a book called Blue Like Jazz. It was a very uh, popular uh, book for a time, uh, Christian author, Don Miller in that book gives his thoughts on the church and Christianity, and it resonated with a lot of people. I, I don't particularly recommend the book to you, but this, this made him um, very well known, a popular voice, uh, especially with younger adults at the time, uh, particularly commenting on the church. And, and ten years later, uh, Don Miller uh, wrote a very much discussed blog post, and in that uh, article, he explained, basically, uh, I realized that, that traditional and organized church and worship is just not my thing, he said. Um, I, I don't really get much out of singing. Uh, sermons is not really how I learn. And so he wrote, you know, don't, don't worry about me. I love Jesus still, but I just, I don't have anything to do with the church anymore. It's, it's not my thing. And that resonated with a lot of people. And has become a very common attitude. Uh, Barna Research, uh, interestingly, tells us recently that two out of five churched adults in the U.S. Uh, report that they don't just attend one church. In, in other words, they don't have a particular commitment to a, a lo- one local church. Uh, and we could cite many other things in, in what is really a seismic shift in understanding the local church. Uh, the, the local church in terms of as, as an institution with leadership and membership and, and worship and so on. And many see it as optional, traditional, rather than essential uh, and integral to life in Christ. And we'll talk more about that next week and, and why that is. It stems partly from cultural change, uh, a shift in just shared assumptions that we have in our culture. It, it stems for some people from serious um, abuse and, and trouble that they've experienced in, in church in the past, uh, and that's a, a serious 
uh, thing and reason and, and other reasons as well. But I want you to see this week, this passage helps to shape our particular identity, our identity particularly as part of this spiritual house, as part of this church that Peter says is being built up. I want to begin just with a brief review of what we considered last week from this passage. Uh, Peter compares Jesus, the living stone, here in this this passage, uh, and believers, who he calls living stones. Uh, Jesus is described as a rejected stone. People didn't accept him as God's foundation for a new life, for eternal life. And Peter's audience... And, and all Christians that in various ways, but Peter's audience in very particular and intense ways identified with that, with being rejected, following the Father and yet being rejected. But Jesus also is a living stone, a chosen, precious, appointed foundation stone, uh, foundation of the church. And so whatever Christians were to the world, are to the world, they're, they're chosen and precious to God. We're precious and chosen stones uh, as well. Verse Four speaks of that, verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. Uh, Verse 9, he describes the church as a a people for God's own possession, God's treasured possession, uh, valuable to him and protected. And today I want to consider what what those stones are used for. What are believers as living stones, what are they used for? Verse 5 says, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So he, uh, for, for, a spirit, for a holy priesthood. He, he talks about a, a spiritual house that has a priesthood. Uh, it, that's a temple, right? He has, he has in mind a temple. He's using the language, the imagery of the temple to talk about the church. And so I want to consider just what, what this implies about the church this morning. Uh, not everything that's explicitly stated by Peter, but what does that imply about the church um, again, Peter's using the language and images and promises of the Old Testament to apply it to the New Testament church, to these Christians. The Israelites were called a holy nation, uh, a chosen race. They also had a temple that, that pictured God dwelling with them. Uh, they had a promised land, God's gracious gift of a place to live with him and a place to rest. But those things were all uh, imperfect and temporary, right? The they never perfectly owned or enjoyed the promised land. Right? It, was, it was a picture of, of something ultimate, right? of a new earth, uh, a new heavens, eternal life in Christ. Um, they looked forward to a temple one day that wouldn't keep getting knocked down by their enemies. That um, was lasting and indestructible. And so Peter, with the rest of the New Testament, is saying God has, has laid the foundation for that temple in Jesus Christ. He is the stone, and this house, this temple, is being built on top of it. It's kind of like when a, a building is being built, there's maybe a, a model in the engineering building of that building, and it shows you a lot of real things about the building, but eventually the, the actual foundation, the actual building is built. And the presence of God with his people in the temple was a reality in the person of Jesus Christ, is a reality. In, in one sense, Jesus is the temple. But in another sense, the Bible speaks, and as Peter does here, of you as the temple. United to Christ, built on Christ, there's a sense in which you and I, as the church, are the temple as well. So Peter's writing to his readers who were suffering. They were 
outcasts, evidently, and saying that God is now building that indestructible temple that was anticipated and promised, and you are a part of it. You're a stone in that temple. So I want to consider with you under number two in your outline, and primarily this morning, six implications of this imagery of the church as stones built into a single temple on the foundation of Jesus, the the chief cornerstone. So uh, first, this points us to the fact the church is a corporate body. The church is a corporate body. Uh, Peter could have, in, in describing Christians as living stones, he could have stopped with that, that idea. You, you are precious stones to God, right? Chosen by him. Uh, but, but that might give us the impression that that's really the imagery of a gemstone, right? You treat gemstones individually. You, you polish one up and you put it in a setting and it looks beautiful by itself. That's, that's not the imagery here. Rather, these are stones like bricks uh, cut out for a building, for a magnificent building, a few years ago, when my sister lived in Philadelphia, we, we were visiting her, and uh, we saw some sites in Philadelphia, and one of the things we saw was uh, the town hall there, city, city Hall, as it's called, and um, City Hall in Philadelphia is one of, the, um, one of the largest stone buildings in the world, uh, if, if you're talking about stones that are actually load-bearing and not, not a facade, um, and it's a, a beautiful big stone building, and, and Think about the fact that any one of those stones by itself uh, is not particularly beautiful or useful uh, or interesting, but, but all put together, it makes this huge, beautiful 19th century uh, stone building with a big tower on top and William Penn standing on the top of that. Um, similarly, Peter says, you are not just a stone individually, but a stone in a building that is in the church. You're a temple of God together, joined together, worshiping together, serving together. Uh, and the, the, the New Testament has all kinds of imagery for this. You're a house, a body, uh, a family. Uh, there are important implications in that for the visible church, for the local church, for, for actual congregations. Uh, you need to be part of the local church. The local church is the expression of this, this building in the world. It's not just a, a you know, global sort of conceptual thing, the church, but, but it has a reality, a physical reality. Be an active part of what God has built you into. You know, permit me some silly personification. Imagine a stone cut out for City Hall in Philadelphia saying, you know what, I'm not sure I'm really into the City Hall thing. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, I like the idea, it's nice, but it's just not my thing. I'm going to do my own thing. You know, it's kind of silly. It's a worthless stone, right? It was cut precisely for a spot in City Hall. And the same is true of Christians. You're made, you're redeemed for this temple, for this house. Being built into this house, you are part of it. And, and the call on us is to live out our calling in Christ corporately. Uh, serving together, worshiping together. Coming to Jesus, as we said last week, is not just between you and Jesus, right? It's coming into a family, into a house, um, into a body. Uh, He brings you into his church. He cares for you in his church. He cares for others through you in his church. That's closely related. Secondly, uh, the second implication is the church is a united body. It's it's all built on one stone, the same stone. Uh, Jesus as the cornerstone. Uh, despite what the church looks like today with 
thousands of denominations and divisions and even different cultures and languages that we can't even speak and communicate across. Despite that, there ultimately are no competing buildings, no competing foundations. All Christians have the same foundation, the same center, the same primary identity in in Christ. And so we should always be trying to live that out to the degree that that's possible uh, in our congregations, in our, in our broader church associations, and as we think about the church uh, worldwide, universal. Um, that, that's very difficult uh, in, in some ways, not, not least because of cultural and language differences and that sort of thing. But, but in this life, in this fallen world, there will always be differences of perspective and different conclusions about theology and Christian practice and paint color and, you know, I mean, on and on, big things and, and little things. And yet Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, urges the Corinthians, he urges that church, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on to describe how some of the Corinthians were identifying with Paul and some with Peter and Um, some with Apollos, and and he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, we need to be careful with uh, where our primary association and identity is. We have helpful terms, um, labels that are somewhat necessary and helpful, Reformed, Lutheran, uh, Baptist, Calvinist, premillennial, postmillennial, etc., to some degree useful in terms of history and heritage and convictions and understanding those things. But we need to be mindful they're all secondary designations, right? All those whose faith is in the Jesus of the Bible who died on the cross for sins and raised for justification are one. They're all built on Christ. The church, in one sense, is united. And, and we ought to strive to reflect that to the degree that's possible. There, there are different ways to talk about unity in the church and how we might pursue that. There's, there's institutional unity, right, within a church association or denomination. They have institutional unity. There's uh, confessional unity beyond that. In other words, we, we have a confession, we, and many other churches share it, and to some degree we, we can have unity around what we believe the Bible teaches, um, but but the, one of the most basic and important and clearly biblical senses of the church being one is simply in our mindset, in our attitude. An attitude of love and humility and, and an acknowledgement that the church is united in Christ. Uh, in verse 9, Peter uh, calls the church a chosen race. Now, in our day, that might sound kind of racially charged or politically incorrect, um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. The, the word here is not race in the way that it's thrown around uh, often uh, in our culture, uh, particularly lately. This, this race is really the family of God, and it includes people from all races and families and nations and countries. Uh, anyone and everyone who confesses Christ as Savior is part of this family. And so it, it really defies racism. Um, God is the one who makes the only meaningful, ultimate human category distinctions. Uh, it has nothing to do with skin color or country of origin or language. Um, it's simply how have you responded to Jesus Christ. Um, 
That's who's part of this one family. Thirdly, this passage implies that the church is the dwelling place of God. Uh, God is with his people. That, that was a major part of the meaning of the Old Testament temple, which is the imagery here. The temple was a picture of God living with his people. God is here, that he loves and protects and guides his people. And, and so here is another reminder that it's in the church, in the local congregation especially, that, that you experience God. That God cares for you. That he instructs and reminds and equips and comforts you. That the church is his design for doing that for his people. It's the dwelling place of God with his people in the sense that the church is, is God's idea. It's God's design. I sometimes thought that the structural or institutional church um, with, with membership and leadership and, and worship and organization and so on is traditional. Right? It's, it's nice, but it's merely man-made tradition. It, it, you can be a Christian just as well in the church, outside of the church, wherever you are. That, that may neglect the fact that the organized local church is by Jesus' design and authority. Right? It's, it's straight out of the scriptures. We gather with God's people for worship. Not because it's traditional or a nice social thing to do, but we do that one day a week as God's people have for thousands and thousands of years at his invitation, by his design. We, we serve one another and pray for one another and encourage one another, show hospitality to one another in community at the command of Christ by his design. Right? We have leadership and authority vested in the elders in the church, preaching of the word at the command of Jesus in his word. We have deacons to lead us in serving each other and serving our community by the design of Jesus in his word. Like the temple, like the priesthood, the church is appointed by Christ as his way of caring for his church, teaching and leading and holding accountable and uh, bringing you to serve the body. You know, if a man has a, a wife and kids and he tells you that he's a family man, but you know that he works late hours every day and then he goes to the bar every night and then he golfs all weekend, he, does, he never sees his kids, never sees his wife, uh, you know that his claim is, is empty. Right? When, when Don Miller writes that the organized church is simply not for him, but he's following Christ. Essentially what he's saying is, is no thank you, Jesus. I, I don't really appreciate the way that you've appointed to care for your people. Uh, and, and to exercise your leadership and service. I'm, I would like to do it my way. Well, that relates to a fourth thing this passage points to about the church. That it's a great privilege to be a part of the church. It's privileged Verse 5, the church is described as a holy priesthood. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The, the priesthood in the Old Testament are those who lived at the temple in the special presence of God. They were the ones who prayed to God for the people. They were the ones who offered sacrifices and wore robes that distinguished them. They, they lived constantly there in, in the symbolic presence of God. And this comes up in the Psalms, Psalm 27. David is, is clearly jealous of those who get to live at the temple. 
and he wishes he could. And we, we studied Psalm 84 a few weeks ago where the sons of Korah expressed their jealousy of the birds who get to make their nests in the cracks in the temple. What a privilege is the point. that This is your privilege in Christ all the time to live continually before God, have access to God in prayer through Christ directly, to ask forgiveness through Christ, to, to minister the word of God to other people. This is in the sense in which you are, are privileged as priests. You're called to serve God as a holy calling and all that you do. We're going to begin studying Martin Luther next week. That was one of the major points of, of the reform that he brought to his, the church is reminding everyone that all that we do in all of life is, is a holy calling from God. You're a royal priesthood, Peter says. That's, the sense is not that you and I are royal, but we are a priesthood serving royalty. All right, we get up every morning called in the priesthood of the church to serve the king of kings uh, in the household of God together. Uh, letter E, this passage makes clear the church is holy. Verse 9, again, a holy nation. That, that's also included in the idea that the church is a temple. Um, one commentator uh, puts it this way, the primary attribute of a temple in first century thought was its holiness. Just as God's presence sanctified the temple of Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit sanctifies the Christian community, setting it apart as God's own. So your whole lives, the life of the church, is characterized by being different, by being holy, set apart to God. Back in chapter 1, Peter spoke of the graces of God in a number of ways, and, and one of the implications was, be holy as I am holy. Be holy in all your conduct, he wrote. You are a temple, you're priests all of the time. Like, like the priests living in the temple, they live there, right? You don't have certain areas of your life that are holy, certain areas of your life that are set apart to the Lord. Like this is your worship time, but then this is family, this is work, this is fun. Um, every moment, every part of our lives are set apart to the Lord because you're a, holy, you're a living stone in this building, the church. Then finally, this passage implies that it states the church is a, a proclaiming, a worshiping body. Uh, twice in this passage, Peter gives a, a purpose statement of sorts. He, he says, this is who you are, this is what you are, to, or in order to, for the purpose of. So verse 5, uh, your living stones being built up in the spiritual house, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And also in verse 9, uh, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and so on, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. That the chief activity of the living stones in being built in this spiritual house is worship. Uh, both uh, particular and formal worship, like, like we're gathered for right now, uh, as would have happened in the temple, and worship in a general sense that, that you give your whole lives in worship to God in response to his grace. That the church is not a social club. It's a, it's a group of people giving their lives, giving their worship to God. The church is a proclaiming and a worshiping body. Well, finally, I, I just want to consider briefly a little bit more uh, of application uh, of these implications uh, you're, you're privileged to be part of the local church. 
The church, by Christ's appointment, is, is part of your identity as a Christian. It's his body. It's the way he cares for his people. This passage makes clear that's your great privilege. It's, it's where, despite all the weaknesses and failures and frustrations of all the humans here in the church, all of us, you particularly experience God's presence and his accountability and his care. So be in the church. Any of you don't need convincing about that. I encourage you to point your kids to these things, to be a part of the church, to think as part of the church. The church is not something that's just a supplement to your life, where you get a little religion or you get helpful tips for, for clean living or, or you go to get a you know, feel-good self-esteem boost or something. It's, it's who you are in Christ. And this is where I think the language we use about the church is actually impactful. Maybe some, some of you think this is a little bit too picky, but uh, I, I would rather not say we go to church. We go to worship, right? We are the church. We go to worship because we are the church. We don't go to church and then leave church and go home. We are the church. One of the things we do as the church is we worship. The church is not a product to be consumed. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. This is part of the, the cultural shift Seeing the church as a product, something you simply, that simply serves you uh, individually or your family needs as it's convenient. The church is a family. It's the family of God. Uh, being part of the church is a way we can lean against or steer our children against uh, the intense individualism and narcissism of our age. The church is a corporate body and family. It's... it's it's the most important association that you have in life. It's the only permanent association you'll have through eternity in terms of a, an outward organization. Um, and so we ought to be identifying with the church even ahead of other good callings, your community or your career, or your school, or your neighborhood. And it's not to diminish those callings, those areas of calling at all, but speaking to priority. Be immersing yourself in your family, in, in, in the life and the care of Christ in the church. Uh, talk about, think about the church as a family. Uh, because you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and this uh, time to consider your word again this morning and the great uh, blessings that are described uh, of your church, uh, the preciousness of the church to you, uh, your purposes in, in building us up uh, into the church, uh, into uh, something that would, would glorify you through all of eternity. Uh, help us to see the great privilege that that is to be part of your church um, to see the way that it is part of being part of Christ, um, and to give us greater and greater appreciation uh, for your grace uh, through the church. We pray all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.